Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It is November 3rd, 2023, and it's a Friday, which I forgot to say. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, thank you for bearing with me on that awkward intro. Oh, it's never awkward when you're with <laughs> the Matt man. No, uh, happy happy November, everybody. Um, what a month it is. It's officially Christmas season. This is Thanksgiving erasure, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not all right with that. I think turkey's overrated, but I think mashed potatoes are not. I think stuffing is not. And uh, yeah, it's... It's Thanksgiving season for me. You know what? That's completely fine. It's okay. Fine. How about that? Can we agree on this? It's casserole season. Sure. Okay. Cool. Fine yeah, I think fine I think right it. now it's like it's casserole. It's soup. It's chili. I cannot wait to make a chili sometime soon. Like next free weekend I have, I'm just throwing it in the crock pot so I could just let my apartment marinate all day. Love it. You come home, the smell is just absolutely obliterating the air with its scent. I love it. Yeah, and both of our favorite football teams are probably going to be winning that Sunday because they're both really good this year. Like, what could be better? Yes. Oh, man. God. <laughs> our combined record is totally not like five wins. God, that sucks so oh, much. Oh, man. You know, That's it doesn't horrible. suck so much. This episode that we are about to record. Let's go. our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Megan Roos of Newsweek, who writes, much of Acapulco still without power as Hurricane Otis death toll rises. Yeah, we touched on this during our last episode. Um, Hurricane Otis made landfall in Acapulco on October 25th as a category five hurricane with a maximum sustained wind speed of 165 miles per hour. 35% of the city's electricity was still down as of Monday, meaning over 150,000 people were still without power. At least 48 people had died as a result of the storm, with 43 coming from Acapulco directly. And then an additional 47 people were still missing as of Monday. Hurricane Otis had a tremendous impact on Acapulco's bay and caused Arena GNP Seguro Stadium to be surrounded by floodwater. The storm rapidly intensified in the 24 hours leading up to making landfall, and we touched on how this is happening more often in the North Atlantic on last week's show. This hurricane occurred in the Pacific, but if you missed last week's show, that's a good place to understand the how and the why of the danger of rapidly intensifying hurricanes. Yeah, and I think just for people who did miss it and don't feel like going back quickly, we could say that a lot of it has to do with planning, because the example that was given in the article that we read last week to go over this this rapidly intensifying hurricane phenomena is you go to bed at 10 p.m. and it looks like there is a tropical storm or a category one hurricane that's going to make landfall tomorrow and then you know eight hours later you realize that you only have 16 hours to evacuate an entire city of people because now it's a category five um that's very similar to what we saw here in Acapulco. And, and like Nick mentioned, this is in the Pacific. The article we covered last weekend talked about North Atlantic hurricanes and how this is happening more often. But this is going to be a global phenomena as climate change makes hurricanes more common, stronger, 
And unfortunately, we're going to see more rapidly intensifying hurricanes because of how climate change is impacting ocean water. Yeah. You know, as that ocean water gets warmer, it's able to sustain storms for much, much longer and again, make them stronger, make them faster, make them rapidly intensify leading into landfall. And, and that's the issue we're running into here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a super scary thought. If you can put yourself in the, in these people's shoes in Acapulco, uh, the fact that you could go to sleep, not knowing that a tropical storm, you're like, ah, it's off in the, you know, it's maybe in the whatever Gulf of Mexico. Oh, it's off and it's towards Bermuda. It's going to go way off. And then boom, it's a category five and it's hitting you instead. Like that is, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know. You, you don't have a pulse. So yeah, it's, it's something that I hope is a bit of a wake up call because unfortunately sometimes things take something like this for people to read abstract scientific data and say, wow, hurricanes are getting much faster, much more quickly. And I know I really should have it up in front of me from last week, but the numbers are something like 8% of hurricanes rapidly intensified within 24 hours going from a tropical storm to a category three or higher. Yeah. 30 years ago, it was only 3%. So we're seeing almost double this, or sorry, over double this occurring. Right. Yeah. That, that is correct. By the way, I'm, I just looked back at the uh, last week's episode, 3% 30 years ago. So really puts it into perspective. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to our next story here from Reuters, where Gopal Sharma writes, Nepal's mountains have lost one third of their ice, UN chief says. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited the region near Mount Everest and said that Nepal's mountains had suffered this loss in just over 30 years as the temperature had increased due to climate change. Nepali glaciers are located between China and India, which are two of the world's largest carbon emitters. So not only are we seeing the atmosphere warming as a result of global climate change, these mountains are in close proximity to two point source emissions that are causing them to melt 65% faster in the last decade than they did in the decade before it. Guterres warned that melting glaciers would mean swollen lakes and rivers sweeping away entire communities and seas rising at record rates. The article states that glaciers in the Hindu Kush Himalaya could use up to 75% of their volume by 2100 due to climate change. The obvious impact here is melting glaciers in the mountains will create dangerous flooding, but this water is also a source of drinking water for some 240 million people nearby. Increased melting could destroy or degrade the water source for these people. So huge concern. Definitely. And Guterres closed this by urging nations to do everything in their power to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I actually read an article yesterday about that. And it said that this goal, while unlikely, is not impossible yet. So there is at least that. Yeah, this is a, it's a rough one. Like you said, they're, they're pretty much between a rock and a hard place being between China and India. And to no fault of their own, they're going to have a really tough time. Um, as climate change continues to get worse. And it's going to take some serious environmental engineering to, you know, I'm thinking about the story that we had in, um, I think it was Pakistan. Yes, where they were, um, they were trying to essentially like create new natural baby glaciers. glaciers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, that kind of comes to mind and I'm like, oh, what, what could they do there maybe to kind of to bring back the glaciers? But yeah, this is a, this is a major concern for sure. 
Yeah. And I think something that you mentioned, like this is going to have a tremendous impact on the people of Nepal. Um, but also like, this is something that the global community is going to get involved, right? If, if, if UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is talking about this and, and saying how big of a deal it is, I think you're right. They're definitely stuck in a spot that unfortunately, like Nepal's climate contributions haven't really been on the same playing field as your United States, your Europe, your United Kingdom, your China, your India, Yeah. but they're feeling the impacts. And I think that's the exact type of country that, you know, will have to receive support from those countries that, that benefited from the fossil fuel economy more. Right. So I, I think the main thing here is like, how do we adapt? Right. Because it's going to continue to get warmer. So these glaciers are going to continue to melt. So for me, it's like if 240 million people could be impacted by losing a source of drinking water, how do we get that number as close to zero as possible? Mm. Knowing that zero is probably not an option. Like things are going to get worse before they are able to get better, primarily because of how long fossil fuel based emissions last in the atmosphere. So we're not going to be able to you know, entirely save this, this water source, these glaciers. Yeah. How can we do, like you said, maybe it's through environmental engineering, maybe it's through better policies. Like how can we do the most good in the face of this really, really tough situation? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the number one concern for sure. All right, let's move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. Environmental Protection Agency is set to reduce lead levels in drinking water and tighten the regulation that has put cities like Flint, Michigan and Newark, New Jersey in danger. Roughly 500,000 children in the U.S. still have high levels of lead in their blood. So President Biden called for the country's estimated 9.2 million lead pipes to be replaced. The EPA appears to be following this call to action. Rocky Mountain Power has proposed a 21.6% increase to its electrical rates to go along with its new 7.6% fuel adjustment increase for its 144,000 customers in Wyoming. This would increase the average monthly household electric bill by almost $20 for customers in a state whose politicians have routinely made it harder for renewable energy to enter the grid for Wyomingers. The state has a tremendous amount of solar and wind potential, but currently exports it to other nearby states. The United Kingdom's Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee concluded in July of this year that there was not a long-term plan to manage the country's reintroduction of extinct or rare native species. The government has now responded to this by stating that it is not a priority, instead focusing on biodiversity through habitat restoration and reducing pollution. To this, I would like to say, why do we have to choose between reducing pollution or species reintroduction? Two things can happen simultaneously. You know, like that is, that is okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand that either. And I do want to also touch on the first one that you mentioned, the EPA uh, reducing lead levels in drinking water. Like, it's just shocking to me that it's taken this long for Biden to, to do anything or just like presidents in the past in general to do something yeah, for anybody. Yeah. Any politician, <laughs> I guess, period, I should say. Um, it's such a hard situation. And I'm not speaking from experience, but like the only thing you can really do to remove lead from your water is to buy an activated carbon water filter, mm-hmm. which costs like money, uh, like a good amount of money. 
And like, it's not an absolute hundred percent guarantee that it's going to work from my understanding. Uh, and then the other thing is just like water is a human, right? We've talked about that at length on this show, but it's important to mention again, it's such a basic life element. Like if you can't have clean drinking water, what else are you like, what else can you do? Like how much must you spend in water per month alone for, for areas that are like already in, um, economically hurting right now? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's also a really good segue into what we're going to talk about after the break. Um, our, our first story, this is a little spoiler, is going to be about water and water rights and how certain water companies have, have profited off of making it difficult for politicians to do the right thing. Um, and I will put it mildly like that. I don't really think the politicians are like innocent in this case because, uh, Hey, you could turn down money when a lobbyist pays you. Yeah. I know. Shocking. But like (laughs) you can do things that are good for your people, even when somebody's offering you life changing money. Um, yeah, but I'm not in politics. So like, what do I know? (laughs) All right. Those stories that we just talked about are in your show notes. If you want to read any of them for more detail, We are going to go take a quick break, and we have two more for you when we get back. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And may I just say that I love this damn title. It is so good. (laughs) Next up, Old Faithful is Boiling, Smelly, and the Perfect Home for These Living Things by Sarah DeRuin of the New York Times. Yeah, along with the title, I thought that this story in general was really cool. Uh, I think it's a really cool look into some of the microbiology that makes up our ecosystems and man, like what a perfect place to talk about microbiology because Yellowstone is famous for, of course, the opposite, macrobiology. <laughs> it's got huge charismatic bison and these giant thermal hot springs and, you know, like mountains, big forests, sweeping meadows, like all of these things that you think of as big and grand, but all of those big and grand parts of the ecosystem are supported by really small microbiomes and bacteria. Um, you know, I mentioned springs, I mentioned geysers, or I didn't mention geysers either. I mentioned springs, but also there's geysers like Old Faithful, and that's what the focus of this story is going to be on. 
So Eric Boyd, a professor of microbiology at Montana State University, said that no one had ever studied a geyser's microbiology before. And this is in part because geysers are volatile and they can be dangerous. The article points out that Old Faithful itself launches boiling water over 100 feet into the air every 90 minutes or so. Dr. Boyd and his team started capturing falling water during the eruption to take back to their lab for sampling. They found that over 60% of the microbes at Old Faithful are thermocrinous, which are a group of bacteria that converts chemicals to energy and loves hot climates. The researchers also found that calmer pools without eruptions had much less biodiversity than what they found in the geyser. Yeah, and Dr. Boyd said that he would bet on any geyser on Earth supporting microbial life, which to me is super cool. You know, I I alluded to this earlier, but microbiomes are some of the backbones of our ecosystem. They might not be as exciting as your charismatic megafauna, like we like to call it. Elephants, big cats, whales, all those animals that you think of when you think of wildlife conservation groups saying, save the elephants. It's because people who don't really care about wildlife conservation in general might be able to say, I really care about elephants. I think they're a really cool special animal. Not as many people are going to do that when you're saying, save the thermocrinus, you know, save these yeah. little small bacteria that you'll never see unless you're under a microscope. So these megafauna are used as ambassador species to say, we need to protect this animal. Well, how do you protect this animal? You protect its home. You protect its ecosystem. So at Yellowstone, you could say, save the American bison. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is saving the bacteria found throughout Yellowstone, including these. There is no life on Earth without microbes, bacteria, and the like supporting our soils. And and that's what I think is so cool about the fact that we found now microbiology within these really intense, bubbling, boiling geysers that erupt water every 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting and cool story. I'm just thinking about a bunch of researchers like just standing underneath like Old Faithful like with like just a bucket and they're just like trying bucket to catch, in a hazmat like, suit. Yeah, exactly. Like with like a super heat proof suit or some stuff like that. Something like that is super funny to me. But yeah, this is this is really cool and something I would never think about on a daily basis that that little microbiomes are getting spit out by Old Faithful every like 50 minutes or something. So cool. Yeah. Have you been to Yellowstone? Have you seen Old Faithful before? I have not. No, you have though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved Yellowstone. I thought it was fantastic. I saw, I think the thing that stood out from the most is like, we've seen coyotes back home. Oh yeah. And, um, seeing a coyote like out in the natural environment, you know, the way it's supposed to look, they're beautiful animals when they get to just like, you know, hunt for the things they're supposed to hunt for instead of having to try to rummage through garbage in the Northeast. But (laughs) yeah, that was cool. Absolutely love bison. So that was amazing. Um, old faithful underwhelmed me a little bit. I'm not going (sighs) to lie. Like it's, it's really cool to see, but it's not something I'd be itching to go back and see again because I think it's like once you see it, you've seen it. Um, that being said, if you're listening and you're like, I want to go to Yellowstone, go check it out. But if you're on trip two and you've been to Yellowstone before, I don't know. I think I think the hikes are uh, more up my alley for, for trip number two. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, did you see it erupt, though? That's the question. Yeah. You did. Oh, OK. Well, then, damn, maybe I won't see it. All right. I could cross that off my bucket list. Whatever. Still do it. Still do it. We'll see. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from CNN, where Anna Kubin writes, 
unstoppable energy transition means demand for oil, gas, and coal set to peak by 2030. This is great news as the International Energy Agency expects renewables to account for almost half of global energy consumption in just seven years. Currently, it's at 30%. So we're talking about seven years from now, an over 20% increase. That's good stuff. The agency also says that there will likely be 10 times more electric vehicles on the road than there are today. China, the world's current largest energy consumer, accounted for more than half of global EV sales last year and continues to be one of the leaders in solar development. So I know earlier in the show, we talked about how China has been the world's largest emitter for the past decade plus, I think at this point, Uh, they overtook the US. So it's good to see that they are now on the opposite part of that trend and really helping to push accelerate for these decarbonization industries. IEA Director Faith Burrell said the transition to clean energy is happening worldwide and it's unstoppable. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of how soon and the sooner the better for all of us. The IEA said that this does not mean that fossil fuel investment will stop, but it's going to make increased spending more and more unreasonable. Yeah, I think that is pretty crucial to bring up here is that it's not going to stop. Nick just said exactly the the elephant in the room. The the bad part about this news is that in 2030, when we reach peak fossil fuel demand, that does not mean that like the fighting is anywhere near done. And in fact, 2030 isn't even going to be close to the last time we emit a fossil fuel. So we need to continue this trend and we need to continue to pick up the trend. I think the most important thing we could take away from this article here is that the IEA maintains more needs to be done in order to limit the world to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Currently, we're on pace for above two degrees Celsius of warming, and that's really bad. Anything above two is is really, really terrible. 1.5 is still bad. It's just like the least bad option at this point. Mm-hmm. And if we can get below 1.5, we have a lot more chances to save many different whether we're talking about plant species, animal species, glaciers, mountains, you know, all these different things we care about. 1.5 gives us the best chance to keep this thing going the way that it's been going. But right now we're not on pace to do that. So decarbonization is good. This story is good. This is needed. Mm -hmm. We're happy about this. But, and here's a really important but, we really need rapid decarbonization to prevent the worst of climate change. Yeah, agreed 100% on your last point. And I think something that we've championed, or maybe I'll speak for myself, I've, I think I've championed this a lot on this show is that like, I always said that it's going to take it actually being like economically smarter for people to invest in, you know, whatever solar, um, any sort of renewable energy. And that's exactly what the IEA said here, that it doesn't mean fossil fuel investment is going to stop, but that it's going to make increased spending on fossil fuels and increased investment in fossil fuels unreasonable. And that's the the number one takeaway for me from this article. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree. You know, it's, it's at this point a much better investment to invest in renewables than fossil fuels, but that's not to say that investing in fossil fuels is a bad investment right now. And definitely not right now. And, yeah. and that sucks because like we're seeing so many oil and gas companies make a buttload of money because right now they're still making money on this because our entire energy system is supported by fossil fuels. You know, it's, it's starting to mm-hmm. be less and less of that energy pie. We still need gas. 
a lot of places still need coal. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going anywhere today. So the fact that this is an accelerating trend of making it less and less reasonable to make these investments, well, maybe that means that the government stops subsidizing it as much. And maybe that means that that subsidy money can go further into solar and into wind and into geothermal, all of those right. different energy systems that right now are also subsidized, but historically have not been subsidized nearly as much as oil and gas. So, yeah, I think this is a good article. I feel good about ending the show on this. There's still much more to be done and, you know, we're going to keep covering it. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of that, we're actually going to talk about this a bit more. The IEA's report that this article was based on uh, actually is in our upcoming Monday episode. So definitely check that out. Absolutely. Please do. Um, And on that note, we are done with today's episode of TPT. Like Nick said, we'll be back on Monday for November's mini-sode. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more of my stuff at soundcloud.com slash and That is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here on Monday. Peace.